Hey everybody, welcome back to the mound visit. It's time for any number three of game number three and we are excited to bring in our next guest, our first big league manager. Let us please welcome Jeff Bannister. We're going to continue with Scott Service who talked everybody into it and now Joe West has just ejected Jeff Bannister. Here we go. Hey, welcome back to the Mound Visit, everyone. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Goodrill, and with me, as always, is our other co-host, Chris Snooze. It's the third inning of game number three, and our guest today has done it all in professional baseball. He was a big league catcher, a minor league manager, a catching coordinator, a bench coach in the big leagues, and most recently, he was the Texas Rangers manager. He currently serves as a special assistant in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. Please welcome to the Mound, Jeff Bannister. Jeff, thanks for taking some time to talk some catching with us. Hey, well, thanks for having me. I, I think that's the first time I've I've heard all that said in succession. That's uh, <clears throat> that just means I'm old and been around a long time. <laughs> well, you've been around the block a little bit here, and and what we try to do is we we start our guest off with what's called our blocking drill, and um, Chris and I will ask you some questions back and forth just to know a different side of Banny. So I'm going to start this one off since there's a history between you and Chris. So my first question to you is, and try to dig down deep and, and tell me a story that was, is kangaroo court worthy about Chris Snooze if you have one? <laughs> well, well, first of all, <clears throat> got, got me now. Okay. <laughs> Well, the one, one, one thing about Chris, by the time that, that we got him in, in Pittsburgh, um, Chris had, you know, I, I like to, to, to say he's got had skins on the walls, right? And, and he'd been around, uh, you know, here's a guy that uh, catching-wise was really fundamentally sound, all the skills to be a catcher, did it his way, right? And you know, extremely flexible and was able to do a lot of different things that, that, you know, most of those young guys couldn't do. Mm -hmm. Right. But the thing that, that I knew in my back pocket, that if I ever got stuck when I was talking to the catchers, I just turned to Chris. And it's like, turn that key on and he was going to let go. <laughs> and I was just going to kind of step back and every once in a while I had to interject say, Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. some of these guys may not be able to do this though. <laughs> but you know, it was, it was, uh, it was, first of all, I, I, I got to say it was a, a pleasure, um, you know, because it is the demeanor and the, you could tell the desire at, the, at that time, the willingness to help others. And that's what, you know, when you get into the coaching side of things and what most people don't think, and, I, and Chris and I talked about this a couple of days ago, that, that coaching um, is different than instructing. You can be an instructor and not know how to coach. Um, but a coach is someone who has the head and the heart and mind when they're talking to another individual. And so, uh, if all you are is an instructor, then you're just, you're just ABC, you know, putting a, a formula together that physically helps another human being. But the most important component, and this is the thing that I noticed from, from Chris from the very beginning was that, that 
you know, he had that part of it, the willingness to, to help another human being with the, with the mental or, or, or even their heart because he took the empathy for others, but also still had the knowledge of, of what he was trying to do. So there you go. Awesome. Appreciate it. All right. That so my, my question coming at you would be, you went from a, let's say, a player coach, and then you went from playing, and the next year you were managing. So what was that what was that transition like? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I went from from being so in nineteen ninety one is when I made it to the big leagues. Right. And then that, you know, that was right in the, the heat of the hype, if you will, for the Pittsburgh Pirates at that time, right? And and the whole Cincinnati and Atlanta Braves deal and and so uh and that well, the winter of '91, I go to Dominican Republic to to play. I wound up blowing my elbow out, and that's that's when I had uh, arm surgery. And so I came back. I was out all '93, and so '94, and I came back, and I was in big league camp. Uh, then I got sent down with the AAA team. You know, I'm living as a, as a as a player, minor league, and at the time, you know, not being in big leagues, minor league player. Last day of, of spring training, Chet Montgomery, um, we'd played one of those, you know, those games uh, that don't really mean anything on a backfield. Everybody's just kind of getting ready for the season. And, and so you know that by the end of the day, when you're a catcher and you're dry, you know, these guys, these guys today have people pick up all their, all their gear, even in the minor leagues now. Right. Where you and I had to, we had to drag our sorry behinds in that big giant bag of gear all the way yep. back to the, the clubhouse. <clears throat> and so and that's before they had wheels on it too. Now, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> so I'm, I'm walking off the field and I see Chet Montgomery, who was a farm director at the time, standing right there at the end of the field one and four, right by the cages. And I look behind me and I'm like, there's nobody behind me. And my immediate thought was, I'm, I'm getting ready to get released, right? So I walk up to Chet and I said, hey, Chet, I'll make it easy on you. If you're going to release me, just tell me now. And I'll we'll shake and hug hand, hug, and we'll, we'll move on. And, and um, he said, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, meet me up in my office. Uh, there's a couple of people who want to talk to you. So I'm like, no, seriously, if you're going to release, he said, no, we don't want to release you. So. I go up to the, I take a shower, I go up to the office, and they have this elaborate plan. John, uh, John Walkenfuss had gotten hurt and had needed back surgery. He was a manager in AA, and so they wanted me to go to, to uh, AA and run the club for a couple of weeks. Well, now I know exactly what they thought about me, right? I'm, you know, my mind's swirling around, and I, I eventually agreed to it, and uh, that two weeks – turned into the entire year. Um, and so the transition, I'll tell you, I went from, from being Tim Leeper and I were roommates in spring oh training. My God. So Leap, Leap was my, uh, he was my, my coach with the Expos. I, geez, great guy there. No. Yeah. Tremendous. Uh, and so I went from being his teammate and roommate to his manager. Now imagine that. <laughs> and and oh, that would I'm be crazy. 
<laughs> I, I'm, tw I'm 28 years old and know nothing about managing. I just, and so um, it was, it was a pretty, pretty tough transition in, in the very beginning because you're just, you're learning everything as you go, right? As a catcher, you, you think, you know, and you, you're, you're helping the manager run the club. You're the extension of the manager and, and everything. You think you're on top of everything. And then now all of a sudden it goes from you're, you're in the, you know, uh, nice, easy Sunday stroll lane. Now you're all of a sudden you're on the Audubon trying to figure it out. And, 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 and also dealing with guys that you were teammates with that you used to, used to argue with, you know, used to go have a beer with. And, and mm -hmm. some of that didn't change, but, you know, it was, um, I look back at it. Um, and there are some guys that I, I, to this day, I'll call up and say, or I'll send a message and say, bro, I'm sorry, man. I had to be the worst manager you ever had in your life because I knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> you, you still talk to, you still talk to Leap at all? You know what? Oh, yeah, we've we talked a lot when when the Rangers were playing uh, Toronto. By the way, just look, yeah. look, look, watch the video. You'll see how we talked. <laughs> <laughs> I I haven't talked to Leap in a while, but, but tremendous baseball guy, good guy, love him, and uh, you know it's just you know Kendall talked about it that you know we there's there players haven't lost passion for the game. They've lost the passion for playing an aggressive game of baseball that um, has been softened to some degree. And that doesn't mean – that doesn't mean we've, – we've gotten smarter over, over, over time. And, you know, we want to see our star players on the field. However, um, you know, sport is inherently cruel and dangerous to some degree. And so now we've we, – we think of, well, we want to keep our, our star pl players on the field. No doubt. But this is – it's a tough game. you got to play hard. you got to play – this – you want to have passion. Have passion for going out and competing and beating the other team. If you want to go out and have dinner afterwards, that, that's fine. I mean, that's you, – you, you know, I still, as a manager, I wanted to – I felt like my job was to instill and help drive that passion for playing – you know, a, a brand of baseball that a fan base could get feverish over and, and love watching their team grind it out every single night and, you know, respect everybody, fear no one. And that, that has been lost. It's awesome. <clears throat> so, Bainey, my next question for you is this, and it's, you know, again, going on to you have these star players and stuff all around you, but who was the best player you ever managed? Now, this could be minor league and somebody we don't know about, or it could be when you were with the Rangers managing at the big league level. Hands down, you know, no, no questions asked. Future Hall of Famer, 3,000-plus uh, hits, uh, Adrian Beltre. Uh, let me tell you something. Uh, what, what most people don't know about this guy, and I get, I'm getting chills talking about it because – I'm a better human being, a better manager, better coach, because I got to spend time around Adrian. Wow. And the the one the one thing that I when I when I look back on my time with the Rangers and the thing that I I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to help do and didn't do, and I feel that I let him down is that we didn't win a World Series. 
one of the first times that I that 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 we we met, talked. I told him because I knew the story and who he was. I promised him I was going to give him everything, every ounce of me to help him win a World Series, and we didn't do that. So, my one of my biggest regrets. Now, this guy, what separates him from everybody else? You can look at the skill set. You can look at the tools. But there is that desire to win every single night, mm -hmm. but has the ability to forget about a bad day, forget about a bad at bat, forget about an error. And he also has the ability to remember that this is a, a game, right? And there is an element of entertainment to it. And if you ever watch him play with a smile and all the antics and everything, but don't leave. I mean, he can be a cobra when it comes to – he can mesmerize you with all that, but he wants to eat your heart out because he wants to beat you. And this guy will play through anything. 2015, we left spring training. He had a torn hamstring, right? And I'm like, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, <clears throat> we're going to uh, start the season with him on the DL. He wanted to fight me. When I told him, we're going to put you on DL, he's like, no, Skip, you're not. I mean, literally, you want to fight me. And that's when I go. <laughs> and then I said, Adrian, we, I need you for – he says, I can play, Skip. Just watch. And so, now, with that first game, he blows an oblique. Now, this man is out there playing with a torn hamstring and a blown oblique and playing better than anybody else on the field. Right? Now – that same year in the playoffs, he slides into second base in Toronto on that turf field and compresses the vertebrae of the lower back. We have to literally help him off the field. He wouldn't come out. He's standing on deck. He's getting ready to walk out on deck in, in, in the playoff game. And I said, what do you got? He said, I've got one swing. I said, well, make it a good one. He promptly hits a ball into – into right field, I mean, almost crawling to first base, right? Makes it to first base. We have to take him off the field. He can't move. Four days later, he's back playing. Jesus. So, and here's, here's the last one. In 2016, we're, it's early in the season, right about, right about this time, maybe a little sooner, he slides into second base. Compound dislocation of his of his uh, uh, of his left thumb. I, I run out there; his thumb's taking a, a, a right turn. Oh. Oh. Blood blood all over the place. Has surgery. Two weeks later, he's playing. How do he's you just, do this? I'm Chris. I'm telling you, and and nobody and you you wouldn't tell. You couldn't tell. I mean, this is. And that's why I'm saying that, that – and I, I just – and I would tell our guys all the time, and, you know, we, we will not know what we are seeing until we miss seeing it. And I miss seeing him on the field because it was such a joy to watch him play. And, but the work that he put in was incredible. Hardest working guy – He's not, you know, uh, you know, I heard Kendall talk about showing up at one o'clock. Beltray was there at noon. 
had his son out on the field hitting fly balls, throwing him BP, and then he would go out, take about 30 minutes worth of ground balls by himself, the same routine every single day, same time in the cage, putting in the swings, putting in the work, the weight room, and I, he would walk by my office every single night, and he would scream trainer at, I think it was 40 minutes before game time, and that's when he was going in to get they, – they duct tape him together and prop him up and put him out <laughs> on the field and we'd play. That's funny. <laughs> so I, I had a chance to actually – I ran into him last year where my son was up at Cooperstown for the week for the 12 and under tournament. And so we're, we happened to be at the Hall of Fame, you know, going through there, checking it out. And uh, Adrian was there with his family walking through. And so my thing was, all right, I'm going to, uh, you know, my son's like, Dad, you know, who is that? I'm like, oh, it's Adrian Beltre. And he's like, you know, nobody's going up and getting an autograph or a picture. Can, you know, can you, can you do this? And I'm like, well, shit, I'm not, I'm a nobody. I played against them, but he ain't going to remember back to 97. He actually actually slid he was with the Dodgers at the time we're in uh Clearwater they came to town and I remember he came it, it was a he was as aggressive in the minors obviously as he was in the majors just 100 100 miles an hour all the time but he had slid into home and my roommate who was another catcher was in the habit of just stomping your foot down sideways and thinking that's gonna that's gonna stop him so um Adrian slid in hard you hear like two bats crack together and it was my roommate's leg and um, I, I think I was in a collision with him the, the day after where, you know, he came in like a bull. I just simply rolled back and flipped him over. But he was, uh, I, I go up there and I go, all right, CJ, I'll go, I'll go see if I can, you know, get you a picture with him. And so I just walk up and I'm like, um, I'm like, hey, I, I got to just let you know we played against each other. I said, I'm scouting right now. Um, and he's just kind of looking at me and I go, you played with Jeff Bannister. I said, so Banny was my catching guy with the Pirates for three years. So uh, he's like, oh, yeah, hey, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. So my son got a picture with him. He's all excited, you know, and everyone else is like, how did you manage that? I go, I had a name drop. <laughs> and uh, and you, you know how it is. You know, you have the – you have all the little kids in the bullpens going, can I have a ball, can I have a ball, can I have a ball? And then when you're a dad and you go to the game and your kid's like, hey, should I just go ask for a ball? You're like, no, you don't ever ask for a ball. You have to – you have to play it cool, but you know when it comes down to it, I'm like, oh crap! You know, I'm a, I'm on the spot now. I'm hey, I'm a minor <clears throat> leaguer. Could you, you know, take a picture of my kid? But yeah, I had a name drop you for that. I wanted to going into the question that I had. Speaking of um, of Beltre and Andrus, those guys. My son was watching a YouTube video for all of the antics and how much fun <laughs> they used to have with pop flies, this and that. What was kind of the the stuff that hadn't made the YouTuber was there one of those where you just come in and it's just these two we're gonna let them play they're having the most fun and that's good for the game or was there ever a time where you're like guys it's like a three-two game you know can you, can you chill out a little bit well uh, yeah it's, you know that's a great question um, I knew coming in the you know the the relationship between the two guys right and, and uh, I'd seen all the you know pop-up goes up and you never know who's going to catch it until the ball comes down, right? And, and you know, all the little things between the two. And, you know, you and I had spent time together. You kind of know my DNA, right? There's, oh, yeah. There is. So, 
there's that intensity there. And so the one thing that, that, you know, during spring training, you know, well, you, you got to understand, I had Prince Fielder on that team too, Mitch Moreland on that team. Uh, I mean, there were some guys on that team that, that, you know, had some real veteranized type. And then I had, there was, there was really no one in between. And then, you know, some really young players, rule five guys, you know, the line of shield junior was on, on the team. And so, uh, the thing that I wanted to be able to do is to create an environment for those guys that, A, as long as that they, they had the ability to focus on what was necessary. Let's dissect it this way. You got a three-hour game, 13 minutes of action. That's what it is. If you dice it out, it's 13 minutes of action on average, a three-hour game. So – I did not, you know, I wanted these guys the ability to have the outlet. And that's 162 nights a, a, a year, right? So have the ability to, if, you, if you're strong enough mentally where you can turn your focus to what's necessary and then kind of turn it to something else so that you can, you can stay sharp, right? Because if you're trying to focus in on, I mean, we're all, have some ADD in us anyway. So it means like you're trying so hard that you get mentally fatigued. Well, and I also wanted our fans to connect and be able to enjoy what these guys really were for the purest form of baseball. Those antics, the, one of the first times ball went up and I'm watching these two and they had me completely fooled. I thought, I thought <laughs> Adrian was going to catch the ball and Elvis is standing there like he wasn't going to catch the ball. And all of a sudden, at the last second, he just throws his glove up there. You know, and I'm like, game three on the job in the big leagues, and we're in Oakland. <laughs> and, you know, my, my heart just – I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, rookie, rookie manager, even though I've, you know, I've been around, it's – listen, again – you you have no idea until you sit in that seat just what goes on and, and um, but they gave me a lot of joy. I loved it. There's <clears throat> a lot of what went on went on in the dugout, and a lot of people didn't see it. And you know, Elvis was always trying to touch Adrian's head. That's you know, <laughs> always you know, always coming up behind him, and you know now. The, the one thing about, about Adrian is that, you know, he held p people accountable. And if, you, if there's, there's one YouTube where Elvis had made him a, a, just a bonehead play and we were, it was down the stretch. And Elvis, you know, you never saw a lot of emotion other than smile and happy from Elvis. And Elvis comes in the dugout and he's still – and you see Adrian with that scowl right at him. And it was like – Big brother's getting ready to kick little brother's behind. And that's when Elvis just kind of gave him a little smirk, didn't work, turned away, and then turned back around and gave him a little smirk. And it kind of broke the ice for Adrian. And, and you know, the dugout was good. But um, Adrian, he was on a DL one night. And I'm sitting there. We're in the middle of a game. And this guy walks out in these shorts, polo, glasses, and, and like a clubhouse attendant. 
sweeping the club, sweeping the dugout. And I'm, you know, I'm in, you know, watching the game intently, managing, you know, doing the having that scowl that managers have and all this other. And and I like, who the hell was that? And it was Adrian. He was out there sweeping cups and and seeds and bubble gum like a like a clubhouse attendant. I had to walk down the tunnel because I almost lost it. We're in the middle of like, like the fifth inning of the game. But that's, that's the kind of stuff that went on. But these guys played, and they played hard every single night. That is hilarious. <laughs> All right. What do you got, Ty? I got – so, <clears throat> Manny, you've, you've obviously been a catching coordinator, and you've managed in all levels. And – I guess who is the best catcher? This is going back kind of in that first question I asked you about best player you've ever managed. But who has been the best catcher you've trained and/or have seen, or been around, or managed? I guess. Yeah, I think when you, I mean, Kendall was kind of the all-around um, because he could. There were so many elements of his game. I mean, he was he was pretty well polished when he when he came in as as uh, a catcher, a young guy, uh, grew up a major league catcher's son. Uh, but to add the element of athleticism, and you know, he could run, uh, he could flat out hit. Had had no power, but I mean, he he could flat out hit. Uh, he could throw. He was, you know, quickness, uh, had some knowledge of the game, uh, learned quickly. There was a lot of aptitude there. Um, you know, so as a whole, when you look at it, all the things as a whole, I mean, there were so many elements of him that, that uh, plus he was, he, he was one of the more durable catchers. I mean, uh, Keith Osick had one of the greatest jobs in baseball when he was at Pittsburgh because he, I told Keith, I said, you need to, this is, you know, this is before Kendall uh, dislocated his ankle. I told, I told Keith, I said, you need to go in and negotiate a long-term contract along with Kendall's contract, and you'll have the best job in baseball because you'll only play four days a, a year. And uh, <laughs> nobody, nobody ever know if you could play or not. And, uh, and so we laughed, because that's, that's what it was. I mean, Kendall would play hard play 150 games a year. I mean, it's just, it was crazy what he did. And so um, in today's game, I mean, if he, if he was catching today, he, he might catch 20 years. Who knows? I mean, it's just, it's just with all the days off. But, um, you know, the other guy that, that I'd have to throw in there is, is Buster Posey, just because uh, I had Buster in, in the Arizona Fall League. And it was, you know, right after he'd gotten drafted and, before he got injured and and so you could tell that that you know really that he was kind of that you know next add the power element to a mvp type player so um but you know on sitting on the in the, in the other dugout uh for a number of years of being in the national league central uh Yadier Molina, 
with and, and when I look at catchers, I mean you, you look at the elements of what they can do. You know, the, the whole receiving side of things, the athleticism be able to to block baseballs, right? But not just block baseballs, but to be able to recover, get to the ball and stop a base runner because we're so terrible now in, the, in today's game on the base running side of it. You, the catcher doesn't get exposed anymore, really, on, on, on their, their own deficiencies. I mean, you can be a you could be a great blocker of the ball, but if you can't get up, get to the baseball, you don't stop a runner. Runner, but today runners don't even run; they don't even try it. And so, you know, the blocking of the baseball, you know, the threat of throwing uh, somebody out, um, and then to call a game have the command of of their team the ability to 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 communicate with a pitcher what does that pitcher need on any, any given any given moment right um and then the, the creativity of a, of a catcher right you have all the scouting reports and and all the information but i would tell our guys all the time i said if you can't if you if you can't there's about three times a night that a pitcher really needs for you to help to help them, to really bail them out of that mental grind. They're in, they're in the shit, right? It's, you know, runners are first, second, no outs. Runners are second, third, no outs. You really need to – this guy is he's scuffling. You know it. You need to be able to turn his brain off and say, let me be creative. I'm going off the, 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 the map here, and we're going to get you out of this. You just need to trust me on this one. And that is the command that a catcher needs. And, and you only do that to be able to develop a relationship with your guys. And so, you know, when I watch a guy like Yadi Molina, he has it. Now, he had some great pitchers too, but just the calmness and the presence that he had. So, Well, going in on Buster Posey, so that I actually had him written down here. So with the game changing, now you – when you were younger, you went through a horrible injury that was game-related where you, you broke your neck, you know. So the fact that you're, you know, able to, to walk again, and I, I think I read, Banny, you were – you didn't have any feeling for over a week. Is that correct? Yeah, I was paralyzed uh, just a little over a week. Um, after the first surgery, uh, once they were able to uh, – take some of the pressure off the spinal cord and that spinal column to stabilize it. Uh, I really, Chris, I wasn't able to do anything for a number of months. Uh, I had two surgeries, um, you know, had to learn how to walk, you know, essentially once I got out of, out of the hospital, but, um, yeah, I'm assuming that you're going to the whole collision at the plate, uh rule no no yeah because you know we all you know being kind of a what i consider myself an old school guy you know i i love the i loved sliding into second not spikes up but i would you know you put your foot up and you try to you try to clip someone um you can't do that anymore the collision thing i i always loved that part of the game i liked staying like i mean i played hockey when i was younger so i knew how to deflect um an impact and know how to angle my body and a lot of the times I would, I would just duck under someone or give like a hip check or, or let them roll over the top. But when I, I saw Posey and then all of a sudden everything's got to change and they got to protect everybody, which is understandable. I mean, Jason said that he, he wished they didn't have collisions when he played. But something like that, do you think that is more on, 
on Buster for being in that position or for coaches to say, if you're ever in this position, here's where you should be from your body's perspective. You know, as a guy that almost lost his life at the play, you know, in the, in that scenario, um, I will tell you, I miss that part of the game. Uh, you know, the game is we shouldn't have to rescue our players from not being or learning the skill set it, that it takes to play the position, right? And again, this is baseball and sport in general are inherently dangerous. You know that. I know that. We all know that it's, it's, it's part of the game. We shouldn't have to rescue our players from being deficient. Now that doesn't mean that, okay, you know, uh, Brian Giles goes in as hard as he can at second base with Marcus Giles playing second base and he tries to blow his brother up and knock him into left field just because, right? There's, there's extremes on either side. Um, however, I personally, I wish they would have never taken either rule, uh, or taken, uh, made a rule for taking that element out. Um, it, it's, it is part of the game. Now, I, you know, how do you combat that? Well, you teach, like you're talking, Chris, you teach a catcher that A, in those situations, you never leave your feet. You don't go down to your knees. You don't get stuck. You don't, you don't put yourself in a vulnerable position. You know where the runners, all the information that it takes. And then it's the space-time repetition of learning how to, to add that skill set to your arsenal of the game. Be, become a complete player. Um, and you might get, and you're probably going to get hit. You're probably going to clip. You know, after I broke my neck, I promised my mom I would never catch again. But I, I just, I couldn't. I tried. And I, I just, I was miserable on the field. It's what I was built to do, what I was designed to do. And I knew the risk putting myself back behind the plate. That was my risk. I was told that. When I was being wheeled out of the hospital, my own doctor said, I guess the question you're going to ask is when, when can you play the game of baseball again? And I said, no, I'm not going to ask you that question because it's not up to you. It's up to me. And he said, well, if you ever have the same collision again, we're not, you, it's, in, it's irreparable. We'll zip you up and put you in the ground. I said, well, and at 19 years old, I told him, I said, I, okay, I get that. That's, I understand that. And so I went and tried to learn how to put myself in the best possible position. And I got hit again. And I even tried, and I even, as a base runner, delivered blows at the plate, not trying to go maliciously get a guy, but it was part of the game. And the same thing at second base. It's just, but the game is not designed to be rescued from itself. One of the last questions I have is kind of filtering into that <laughs> a little bit. But is there something that you would change about the catching position 
you know, I know that we're, we're valuing catchers <clears throat> by the way that they receive the baseball now. I mean, are you a fan of that? Do you believe in that? Or is it um, kind of that, hey, catch it, don't move it, or, or whatnot? Well, I, I, that's, a, you know, that's, a, that's an awesome question. And, and, you know, first of all, we've always, we've always valued the ability to receive the baseball, right? So the, that little extra edge of can we gain our pitcher two to three inches? right mm -hmm. to get it off the barrel and even can we present a baseball to to an umpire not to fool him but to make it look like it's strike a ball a strike gaining an advantage catchers that can do that they're rare in today's game really and i'm gonna tell you there's all this hoopla of, you know the 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 you know the box the strike zone that you see the graphics you see on tv well, you know, I wish most people would understand that that's, that's a graphic that you see on TV. That's not necessarily the graphic that is that these umpires are being judged on, right? Um, the one thing that I would argue with most is that, a, well, a lot of these umpires in today's game, they, they, they learn on that system. So what are they learning? They're learning what that strict strike zone looks like and they're actually really really good mm -hmm. i mean when you when you think of an umpire that on average that is seeing 300 pitches a night and he misses three to four you would take that ratio in any job really right, <laughs> right. i, I yeah. wish i was correct you, you know 2997 times <laughs> <laughs> out of 3,000, I mean, you know, 3,000 pitches or 300 or 297 times out of 300 pitches, right? I, yeah. I wish I was that correct. Um, but things that I would, you know, what I want to change or leave the same, I, A, I'm, I fear that if we, if we go to the electronic strike zone, and I think we're steamrolling that way because we're a fan-driven sport by the way. I mean, we really are. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we try and I, and I get it. I mean, you know, we want our fans to show up. Um, baseball is one of the, we talk about was it's the, the, it has been the game that, that has stayed constant or the same reality is we're, we're, we have evolved more in our game than most any other game. I mean, People need to go out and read the history of the game of baseball where it started. The pitcher used to play for the offense, for God's sakes. Right? You used to tell the pitcher, you could tell the pitcher, hey, throw it here. Don't make it, don't spin it to where it curves. They couldn't, they used to be, used to be illegal. Right? <laughs> so just people need to slow their roll on, on that part of it. How, oh, oh, you know, no. You know, for me, Again, I'll go back to we shouldn't I mean, catcher, shortstop, second baseman, center fielder. Premium defensive positions on the field. So why are we trying to – shouldn't we try to, you know, it's like if, if, a, if, if a player has a great skill set, mm -hmm. shouldn't we use that and exploit that as the best we can and promote that? 
we go to an electronic strike zone, we're taking one of the greatest skill sets there is on the game, in the game, on the field. We're saying it's, it's, it's not necessary anymore. It's not worthy. That's mm -hmm. wrong, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we shouldn't do that to our athletes. And um, for me, this is not old school. It's just the right school. There's a difference. And Chris, I'll, uh, uh, you know, great discussion on, you know, old school versus no school. It's not, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's the right school. What's, how do we take these great athletes that are on the field in today's game and get them to play the game of baseball the right way, right? What is the right way? Well, whatever skill set that you need on any given night, any given moment to be able to help your team win a baseball game. That's the, you know, fundamentally sound. What does fundamentally sound mean? That means that, you know, make plays that you're designed to make. We exploit and promote highlight plays and they're great. I love them. I mean, it's, it's, but they don't happen <clears throat> as many times as you actually think right we've taken a lot of the thinking away from our players and so what we're doing is we're 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 taking away the instinctual part of the game for our players because i love the whole you know and you, you, you chris you, you scout and one of the things that they'll, they'll ask you about but well, what are what are his what are his instincts like right like like you were born with baseball instincts save it you're not born. You're not born with baseball instincts. You're you're born with a gift of being able to be athletic. And if you develop them over time, the motor skill that it takes to to play this great game, right? Because that's all. When you train a player, all you're doing is you're training the motor skill and developing the head and the heart. Just remember that. The swing, it's a motor skill. The pitch delivery, it's a motor skill. Catching a ground ball, it's a motor skill. You go out and you develop a golf, it's a motor, golf swing, it's a motor skill. And the more time you do it, the, 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 the more development of your own motor skill that you're developing. We can't take that away. We're trying to box these, these players in and not allow them to, to, to really utilize their own baseball talent and athletic skill set. By telling them what to do, where to stand, how to play. No, that's all information. But, you know, you asked about Adrian and, 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 and Elvis. And I'll, I'll give you this one. And so, you know, and I, it's, and we can go on. And I, but I, I really, I want to give you guys and, and whoever's listening a, a little thought process, right? You guys got into some of the analytics and things like that. I love the numbers. I love analytics. They're a they are a roadmap to either proving or disproving what your own thoughts are in the game, right? As a manager, we were using analytics well before they became popular. We just didn't know the term or we didn't have a way to capture and keep all the information other than right up here in our minds. Now it's a roadmap to the, 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 being able to prove or disprove what we thought, right? Or what we think. But never forget that these guys are human. 
right? And so there is some of that that we're, we're, we can't repeat the same thing over, and we're not robots, over and over and over and over again. We can get close, so there's a flaw in some of those, those numbers. And that's where, you know, like Adrian and Elvis, right? We introduced the whole positioning aspect to those two guys. And, I, and you know, two very they, – they were old school, man. They, they didn't grow up with it. And I said, listen, here's what I want you to do. Just open your mind, open your heart to it. Understand what it is. But here's what I want to give back to you. You guys understand reading the, the bat, reading the hitter, reading the pitcher, watching, right? Understanding where, he, you know, is, is Cole Hamels dead on tonight or is the ball leaking back out over the heart of the plate? So we're going to get, a, 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 you know, a number of balls pulled on the ground to where we wouldn't if Cole was dead on. I can't see that from, from the dugout, but you can see that from the field. You know, Chirinos, you can see that from, from – uh, sitting behind the plate. So the ability to use your own and develop your own instincts, that's what we're taking away from these players. We've got to be able to get back to it, allow them that aspect of it. And that is, that is starting. I mean, I got a six, I got an 18 year old son that, that plays. He's been playing. This stuff's being introduced to them at such an early age that they don't even think, think the game anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where, we need to stop that because that's what's it's that's what's damaging the fundamentals of this game. That's awesome. one that's one really other fun. thing regarding that too, <clears throat> when you put the the whole strike box versus you know a, a, a zone that an umpire would have, you think that I mean you've seen it. How is the relationships changing over the last four or five years when they put the the TV box on TV? How does that affect the relationship with the catchers? And the umpires and normally well, our we're, we're we're to try to you know talk to him throughout the game try to work ourselves in favor to get that pitch later in the game it's almost like you can't do that now well you chris that's part of the problem is that that um the players have access to uh <laughs> they're at bat I mean, immediately after it's done, yep. right? Look, there's the video room within earshot of of the dugout, right? <clears throat> and you take a pitch that you think is borderline as a hitter, right? Or you catch a pitch that you think is borderline that, or you thought was a strike, an umpire calls a ball, and now all of a sudden it becomes, well, I'm going to prove to you, right? And if you player goes and watches it and all, you know, and all you can see. And the graphics, again, they're not perfect. Um, and so now that, that has, in my opinion, the access to immediate information in the game video-wise <clears throat> has probably done more to damage that whole aspect than anything else, right? You used to be where, and, and I don't know why you need that information immediately. I mean, it's gotten me, it got me kicked out a number of times, right? 
I it just, I'll confess it. I mean, the, I'll, I go look at it and I mean, it's like, uh, you know, Angel, no, it was, it was ball. You call it a strike. And, you know, it's a, that ar- whole argument or my, you know, players arguing. And so now I'm arguing and it's just, um, the reality is I don't think that it really has damaged the overall relationship. I think it damages the immediate relationship because the immediate feedback player is focusing in on, you know, well, that was wrong. You took the bat right out of my hand or, Hey, catcher wise, you know, Hey, you're taking, you're taking the, the game away from my pitcher to where now we just can't move forward. Right. Where now, if you didn't have all that immediate information, you could just move forward and play the game. Jeff, I want to shift over a little bit into what your job curtail is like for a manager. We don't, we hear a lot about, you know, catcher preparation, maybe hitter preparation. We never get an opportunity to find out what a manager's preparation is in the big leagues and just to understand how hard it is. You know, a lot of people go on, you know, they turn on the TV and they don't realize how difficult your job is from when you show up to the ballpark to thinking about the next game. Obviously, the the first game is present to you, but the next game is is also important or a series of when you're in a series, a four game series. So kind of walk us through about what your preparation was like as a manager. Well, I'll I'll start from, you know, let's say from the night at the, the end of the ba- end of a game, right? Mm-hmm. So we played game one. At the end of that game, you know, you have a press conference, you're talking to all the media and um, you're delivering whatever messages you need uh, to the media, to some of your players, to your fans, and you talk about the game and things like that. And then once, once that's done, you know, you're talking to your coaches about uh, tomorrow, right? And who you're playing and, and you know, and your trainers and medical staff, guys going to be available, who's injured, things like that. And then go home, try to unwind. And what I did was I had a condensed version of the game. And I would I would watch the game in a condensed version and kind of – get a sense of, you know, were we playing where we said we were going to play? How did our bats look? You know, did my, what, where was my starter? Did we, you know, how was our game plan? Did we make adjustments? You know, what did the at-bats look like for our hitters and things like that? How were we running the bases? And then, you know, I'll jot down some notes and, and things like that of, <clears throat> of, you know, to talk to the net the next day, talk to our coaching staff about, things that I saw, you know, and, and, and so, and then wake up the next morning, get a, grab a cup of coffee, uh, try to spend some time with my wife. Uh, my, my daughter was in college at Baylor. Uh, my son was in middle school, uh, you know, trying to rob some time for them. Mm-hmm. Drive to the ballpark, get to the ballpark. I, I generally got to the ballpark about 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the first thing I would do is I, I would sit down and I would read kind of the current events of baseball so that knowing, you know, I'm probably going to be some ask some questions. Uh, I would check out the teams that we were going to play, kind of 
What are they trending? How are they trending? Where are they at, right? And then from that point, I would go in and I would try to get a workout in physically to try to keep my body in, in, in good shape. Knowing that I'm running, running on coffee, uh, <laughs> n- nicotine, and, and, and no sleep. It's seven, seven and a half months of sleep deprivation, right? <laughs> and, and so, and, and still trying to be a husband and a father. I mean, that, that, that part of it. And, and, and so, and after that, I would, I would generally meet with the medical staff because by that time, they would have a pretty good sense. Guys that were injured, banged up, you know, are they available, not available, right? And then from that point on, I would, I would talk to our uh, strength conditioning staff because they have a pretty good sense of, you know, what's necessary for these guys on a daily basis. Who needs to back off? Who might need a day off? You know, what are, what are the future days off? Uh, and where, they, where some of these guys are mentally, because as you guys know, once, you know, there, there are three locations in a, in a clubhouse the training room, the dining room, and the weight room of where guys talk the most, right? And so you find out that information of kind of where they are emotionally and mentally, right? Are there little any hot button things that, that as a manager, I kind of need to go take care of, talk to, pay attention to. The guy, he had an argument with his girlfriend or he and his wife having some issues. Is, you know, is his kid sick or is he, you know, is his hamstring a little tight? Things like that. So, you know, go over that information, plan for the next kind of 10 days, if you will, uh, for our players, travel days and things like that. And then at that point, I would start talking to our positional coaches, like the hitting coaches. I bring the hitting coaches in. What's our plan of attack for tonight, for this series? Who do we have available based on a lineup? What are the best matchups coming off the bench? What are the the, the matchups that we want to try to stay away from with our guys in the lineup. Is this a guy that we're going to try to attack early? Do we need to set back, take some pitches? What is our, you know, what is our overall all game plan? And then kind of interjects kind of things that I saw with our hitters. Am I seeing what I'm seeing or what are we working on? And what's, and, and all the while asking the question, are there things that, that I can help you with that you are talking to our hitters about in the cages in the field in their approach to say do i need to back you up say hey you know is is as simple as getting a foot down on time and the players can struggle and doing it and i walk down i'm passing down the hallway going hey delino man great job of getting that foot down i know you're working really hard on it you know just that that support of your coaching staff things like that and then move to the to the pitching core you know pitching coaches bullpen coaches you know you know the same routine of, you know, where are we at? Who's available? What are the matchups? What, you know, how are we going to attack this team? What's, you know, the, 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 the forecast for today? What's, you know, not the weather forecast, where are we at? And then, you know, hey, if, if we blow our bullpen out tonight, are we killing ourselves, you know, a week from now? Those type of things, you know, is, is tonight a night that we chase a win? using everybody or do we need to, you know, we don't want to have that collateral damage. If, you know, we win a, we might win a game tonight, but it's going to cost us five or six games down the road, things like that. And then, you know, talk to our defensive coaches, the outfield coaches, uh, infield coaches, positioning, you know, we'll, we'll look at the video together on, 
you know, were we positioned where we needed to be? Did we make the adjustments we said we were going to make? <clears throat> How are we, are we focused? Are we getting on off the ball? Uh, are we reading the back? Things like that. And then, you know, I would sit down with, <clears throat> with, with the bench coach and we would map out the next seven days, if you will, lineups, get with our analytics team on, you know, what do we think our best matchups are, you know, and then how are we going to structure that lineup? Again, there are multiple ways that you can put a lineup together to attack a pitching staff, you know, certain guys, you know, you know, take a, 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 uh, Verlander, if you will. And we had some moderate, no, no, I take, I, I give you one Kershaw 2015. We go into, I think it was 15. We go into LA and we sat down with, with <clears throat> my bench coach analytics crew and, you know, they're going to tell you, uh, analytics crew are going to tell you, well, you know, you got to stack all your right-handers, keep all your left-handers out of the lineup, right? Um, but there was something that, that we looked at as a coaching staff, you know, where, you know, Kershaw never, never faced a, a, a heavy left-handed lineup. What do you know about Kershaw? Kershaw is a very disciplined driven guy who pays attention he knows a lineup that he's going to face and he sits out there in the bullpen and goes over every single pitch visualizes absolutely everything so mental warfare for me was to turn that turn that aspect around give him something that he wasn't expecting we proved stacked the lineup we you know and it was one game he learned from it but we had him beat beating the 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 uh, Gatorade cooler in, in LA because he was out in like the third inning, but th you know, those are, so those little things that you go through and then once all that's done, right. And then the reporters come in, you do the pregame show with the radio guy, you do your, you, you do your scrum with your beat writers. And then, Oh, by the way, you get to play a baseball game. And I will tell you that, that the, 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 other than the game, the number one best moment and, and, and what I miss the most is when I would leave my office and all of the planning, right, all this stuff, knowing that, that after the first pitch, sometimes you can take that shit, tear it, tear it all up and throw it out the window and you're, you're drawing it up in the dirt, right? <laughs> that, that the best moment was walking out of that office walking down that tunnel, walking into the dugout. And at the moment it, it opened up and there's fans in the stands. You can hear all the people in the stands. You can feel the sunlight and smell the, the, the grass, the popcorn, the, the food. And there is a sense of, of quiet and peace throughout the chaos. <laughs> That's awesome. And I sat, I sat on that bench, and I'm watching people, and I couldn't wait for the national anthem. And it was, it's the coolest job on the planet. It really is. And then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> and you're just trying to keep the calm throughout the storm, knowing that all the shit you planned for 
again, you might just have to throw it away and draw it up in the dirt. That's awesome. Well, let me let me ask you this, Benny. So, with with that being said, with all the preparation that goes into the day and looking at the outfielders and the infielders and taking a view of the entire game in itself, <clears throat> they always say that catchers make the best managers, just because we've been we've been through it all. We see it all. We we're an extension of the, the manager itself. You know, do you feel like that was one of the things that made you so prepared to jump back to that, you know, and to become a, a manager at the major league level without, you know, I'm sure there was a little bit of, of, you know, growing pains or learning curve, but for the most part, if we've done it before, it, it shouldn't seem like anything should be real new or, or faceless like that. Well, and, and, and that's awesome because, um, you know, as a catcher, you're, you have to be in tune with the game, right? And, and, and you have to think along the lines of, you know, what's, how do I help my pitcher meet the demands of this game, right? You're not thinking about your, your four at-bats until you take your at-bats, right? And, and you see, you, you got a great, one of the greatest seats in the house where you see everything. It's all laid out in front of you so you get a greater visual of what, what happens, the domino effect, if you will, of every single pitch. And so I think that prepares you for kind of the nuances of the game. Now, the relationships that you have with the pitching staff, it helps prepare you for that managerial relationship. Again, the greatest job or the number one job for a manager is not necessarily the X's and O's of the game. If you, if you've prepared your players and you've developed your players and you continue to develop your players on a daily basis to prepare them, your coaching staff is preparing them and working with them every single day. And, and you have guys who have, have this great desire to learn the game, right? then they're going to learn a lot of those nuances of the game, the X's and O's, right? So the problem that we have in today's game is that, you know, travel ball, select ball, whatever you want to call it, uh, camp ball, uh, showcase ball, doesn't prepare these guys for the, 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 the nuances of the game. So the coaches and the coaching staff and, you know, development programs have to develop these guys for that. The, 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 the number one job for that manager is the ability to reach those players, support your coaching staff, challenge your coaching staff on a daily basis to, you know, <clears throat> hey, listen, hey, we have, uh, you know, situation A with player that, that what are we doing? Kind of keep that roadmap moving forward, right? And then help, you know, motivate challenge those players your players to show up every single day now you have to make decisions but those decisions are a collective decision that you've gone over prior to the game and and so when when you know, listen you've gotten you know i would i would argue with with most right on or not most but some on certain situations of the game right and just you know on uh let's let, let's say that 
you know, you've got a situation where, you know, your starter's getting towards the end and you need to go get a bullpen arm and bring him in. And, you know, it may not, you know, it's a left-left matchup and numbers say this and that. And, you know, however, again, you know, the risk-reward decision-making on it's not as clinical as just getting said pitcher into the game in this situation. It's, again, what is, if this decision doesn't go well, what's the collateral damage? You know, if it does go well, you know, what's the next decision that you have to go? And that's where it becomes collaborative on that you need a group of people that have, you've mapped all of this out. So the, the ability to manage all of that information, if you will, with the personalities that, that, that because listen, you pinch it for a guy that uh, you know is is just starting to kind of feel himself. He's been struggling. He's just starting to feel himself, and you know that confidence is 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 a great ingredient to being able to hit. And all the numbers say you need to hit here for this guy, but the reality is, if you do that then you may lose him for the next two weeks. Being able to manage those situations for me is the, the, the greatest job for, for really good managers. It's not necessarily just managing the, the clinical numbers, if you will. Is there a time that you <clears throat> second-guessed yourself and the situation – you know, turned out into a sense. And then you looked at that situation further down the road and said, I'm not going to do that again. So 2015, we, um, we win the division on the last day. Uh, Cole Hamels pitches, you know, we had, we'd wiped out our bullpen for, you know, trying to get there. Mm -hmm. Right. We, we, all-star all break, we were nine games back and below 500 uh at the uh, trade deadline we were seven games under under 500 and you know i'm trying to convince the, the gm we're going back and forth on you know where this team is at and i kept telling him you know this team's going to win stick with us don't don't give up on us we're going to win go we talked about getting cole hamels go get cole hamels and he got a couple other players in uh sam dyson jake deekman we got napoli there's you know, some we Drew Stubbs, who you know is good a center fielder as the you know defensive guys. You, you you know we got Will Venable. Well, there are a number of guys we went and got that kind of helped this team out, and, and we're just I mean we're just down the stretch. We're pouring absolutely everything we can mentally and physically. We wiped out the bullpen the day before the last day. We need to win one game. We had we had a, I think it was seven run lead, eight run lead. And I'm in the dugout, and it's like the sixth inning. And I look behind me, and the whole tunnel, the whole corridor is, is, is jam-packed full of people, police officers. They had troughs full of, of uh, you know, sodas that we were going to spray on the field. And there was, I mean, just – it was a sea of people, right? And I – you know, <clears throat> my starter starts to, to – 
falter. He's starting to give up some runs. I make a a, a, a switch. That doesn't work. Make another – bring closer in early. Doesn't work. Nothing worked, right? By the time the eighth inning rolls around, I look behind me. There's nobody in that corridor anymore because we're losing. <laughs> and we wind up losing that game, right? And um, – I told the media afterward, I said, well, and they asked me about that. I said, hey, you know, it's, it's a tough decision. You make decisions, you live with them, and you move on. However, I knew what I had for the next day, and I had Cole Hamill, so I knew, and I told him, I said, you're going to be a starter, the, the, the middle guy, setup guy, and the closer. Got it? Yeah. All right. Well, he goes out first inning, gives a two-run two run home run, and we're, we're losing. And um, however, our team – just, just great human beings and competitors, and they fought back. We win. Now, fast forward. We win the first two games against Toronto at home. We go to Toronto and uh, lose the first game. Cole Hamels is, is, is on the mound, right? The guy that I trusted the entire – our entire division, you know, life on. Uh, we get in a situation, and it's one of the toughest toughest things I've ever seen as a as a coach, manager, as a player, or anything like that. Uh, I watch a I watch a just a a great player, and if he continues to play, stays healthy, he'll put up numbers, and you know has an outside chance. I mean, continue Elvis, you know, quietly put together one of the one of the best careers that you can have. Uh, he's two thousand hits, I believe, something like that, and. Um, but he had three errors in one inning. And they were all different errors. Cole Hamels was on the mound. And um, Cole gets to a point where he's almost right around 40 pitches in one inning. And knowing what he'd come off of um, the previous outing, short, short rest, really didn't have uh, – and he wasn't pitching poorly. It's just everything around him was starting to disintegrate. And I make a move. And I go to my bullpen. And, uh, you know, Bautista winds up hitting home run off of, of uh, Sam Dyson. And when I look back in retrospect, and I think about, you know, what I entrusted Cole Hamels with previously, and I think to myself, you know, listen, great leaders, and I talked about it very early, great leaders have a sense of being able to take the chaos around them and shut it out and be a beacon of light for, for those who need it most. It, it, it was probably the most fallible moment in my, my managerial career. I, not being the calmest, and saying, I'm going to make a decision to interject myself in this game and make a move. And I look back and I had prided myself all along on being a manager that, you know, didn't make really quick decisions based off emotion, but, you know, very knowing what I knew best about my players. And I let that moment get away from me and I made a decision that and I don't it's hey the outcome is the outcome mm -hmm. 
right? But that's one that's one that I live with, and, and you know, um, I the tell of two two moments, if you will, trusting a guy. Not that I didn't trust Cole. It's just that I didn't. I got away from my own principles. Danny, with uh, I mean, we all know that the game is is a business. You know, it's got to be a lot different, obviously, as a, you know, a, a minor league manager compared to a, a big league manager because you're there to, to win and you have to do what's best. So when you have, let's say you're putting your staff together, okay, and after a year, and it, I, I mean, baseball is a, is a close-knit group. We all have our, our friends and guys that we talk with. When you, I guess, are, are hiring someone you say I, I need to bring on a pitching coach I'm gonna need a, a new hitting coach and it, it changes after a year do you find that it's maybe easier to just hire people that are within a that you know from baseball or people that you might have been in closer personal relationships with or do you try to avoid that to and then maybe not have that uh, relationship damaged by saying I got to go a different route and I got to release you from being a pitching coach, but we're still boys in the off season. Yeah, that's, you know, <clears throat> and that's, that's decisions that leaders have to have to make, right? Um, personal relationships versus professional relationships. And, you know, personal relationship is a selfish relationship because now I have to put myself in a position of what's best for the players not what's best for me. And that's where, where those decisions have to, you know, there is, um, you know, I, I, I used to hear all this all the time about, well, <clears throat> you know, hire guys that are going to be loyal to you. Well, no, I, I want the best possible person I can find that, that A, he's a connector, right? He has the ability to develop a relationship with those and a relationship doesn't mean oh well, I'm going to go out and eat dinner with you on every single night. That means that I mm -hmm. I can develop a relationship with it, with another human being. That now I'm hey can I help motivate him? Can I reach his head? Can I reach his heart? Do I have and again we can go hire instructors who are some of the best instructors on the planet to help the motor skill development of our players. But if we can't connect the dots in side the, the heat of the battle right because you know this of playing a season of groundhog day to one day seems like the next day and then oh it's the it's you know it's the greatest sport of attrition there is when you think about the season and how can a coach get the most out of a player all the while keeping him in a position mentally and emotionally to show up and play every single night, you've got to be a connector. You have to have the ability to, to be a visionary also of what you think this player is going to be so that you have a plan for that player. And so when it's, when it's just a personal relationship with the manager, then it's just like having a barbecue, <laughs> right? You're just shooting the shit in the back of the uh, of your your house. That doesn't work very well. And also, as a manager, I need somebody to, that's going to, when I get sideways, to be strong enough to come in my office and say, "Hey, Skip, you're full of shit. You need to stop." 
you know, you just destroyed 25 guys out in that, in that room that have been, you know, busting their ass for you for the last two weeks. And it's 102. And you've been, you, you know, you've been putting them to the post and, and now you want to scream and holler. You want to be mad. You want to be grumpy. No, I need somebody that's, that's, you know, strong enough that's willing to come in and say, Hey, because when I look at my tenure with, with Clint, right. That what I prided myself in the most, when we were together in 11, uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, is that to walk in his office and say, hey, bro, you know, you might want to, you might need to give a little fire today. Or, hey, bro, you know what, you might need to back off because these guys are, they're, they're, they're you know, look, they're, they're dying for some love, whatever it is, right? And you can't do that if all you are is just a loyal servant. How did you how did you manage stuff going on like that? So you obviously when you were a, a coach in Pittsburgh, it wasn't the you know they they weren't a playoff caliber team. You go to you go to Texas and obviously they are, but dealing with you know saying okay today we need to light a fire, we need to uh, I'm going to go easier. I'm going to maybe joke around with the guys a little bit more. You know, was anything where you almost had to flip a switch and say, okay, look, we, we got to, you know, kind of what is the, when you have a lot of big personalities, a lot of guys making a lot of money to go in there and kind of tell them that they got to clean it up a little bit, or they got to play a little harder, or, you know, they got to focus a little more to the details, whether it's studying film or that, you know, what's kind of, did you do that as a group or did you do more of it individually? So, <clears throat> I rarely had full on team meetings. There wasn't, you know, we'd have team meeting spring training. We'd have a team meeting coming out of spring training. We'd have a team meeting to start the season. Um, we would have a halfway point and then, you know, going into the playoffs. Now, if we ever had a meeting in between, it was more informative about things than it was, you know, um, handling or discussing issues, right? <clears throat> Typically, most all of that was done individually. If I needed to do that, I trusted. Um, we had a leadership group in that clubhouse that I trusted. Um, the coaching staff, and that's why I say, you know, are there things that that I would trust with the coaching staff to go hand, go go take care of, talk about? you know, come back to me if they needed my assistance on it, then, because all in all, you're, you're responsible as a manager, you're responsible for everything, right? All of it, it doesn't matter. The clubhouse attendance, all of it. But you also need to be able to uh, delegate responsibility to your staff, to the people around you, to, you know, help grow the leadership on your team. Right. Always felt like that. OK, got leadership from Beltre. And by the way, money does not dictate leadership. OK, not a, not one, not at all. Now, I'm going to tell you, this. just because you're, you, you have the highest salary doesn't make you a great leader. Now, it may, it'll make you a leader, but 
are you leading your guys in the right direction or are you leading them in the wrong direction? Mm -hmm. So I never looked at it as that, hey, hey, you're making money, so you're going to be a leader. No, leadership comes in consistency, the ability to connect and reach other people. And do people want to listen to what you have to say? Do they respect you enough? by how consistent you are, how you show up, are you willing to work and your work ethic and your empathy for others and things like that. So <clears throat> that part of it for me, you have to be able to develop that within your own group. And then you have to be able to develop leaders that are coming that are gonna replace the guys that leave because this is a very transient business. And so, you know, there might be a guy that comes over from another team that was a leader on that team is he going to be a leader on your team? No, he's, he's got to earn that right to lead inside that group. But I tried to utilize as many people as I could to help in that aspect. <coughs> one, one last thing that I have for you, Manny, is, um, you know, you're, we've gotten a lot of different perspectives from a lot of different people on this show, whether it's from the coordinator position or players themselves. And now this is our first with a managerial <clears throat> type person. So my question to you is this, now you're seeing more and more catching coaches at the big league level or guys that are servicing as a catching coach, you know, whether it's the, the bullpen catcher, they're working on the receiving with the catchers and whatnot. For you, when you transitioned into being the manager for the Texas Rangers, was it was it hard or was it uh, something that you just kind of let somebody else take a hold of when it came to working with the catchers? Yeah, no, it's hard because when you are a positional coach, you're in there every single day with those players, right? You're mm -hmm. working. That's you, that gives you your <clears throat> look as highly motivated, driven people. We want to feel accomplished, right? At the end of the day, Every single day. I mean, it's, you know, I wake up every morning. I'm, I think of the 10 things that I want to accomplish today, right? If I don't get to them, I'm, I'm, I get a little whacked out because we're all, <laughs> we're high, we're, we, we, I mean, we're high achieving driven people. And so when, and that I would get that from being, when I was a positional coach, when I started managing now, well, I hired a, a, a catching guy, right? To be that that person, mm -hmm. I have to trust. Now, it, there were times I would walk out there, and uh, Hector would be with with the catchers, and I, I loved the position, right? Um, and the thing that I tried to do, and we're all we're all we're all flawed people, and there are times that you it's like you don't get it right, don't get it perfect, and and there were you know I tried to work if I needed something to work through Hector and this is why I, I, I loved him so much that um, one day I went right this you know went right to Chirinos I saw something in Chirinos you know stance and receiving and you know he was carrying the ball out of the strike zone and so I'm like I went right to him right and um, so what am I doing there I'm going right to a player. I'm undercutting my coach that I, that I trust most, right, to be able to hire to do this. So what is Trino's thinking of me going, oh, well, well, hey, 
You don't trust him anymore, so now you're coming straight to me. I'm, I'm chopping the legs out from underneath my coach, right? But to, 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 to Hector's credit, calmly walked in my office later that night and said, hey, hey, bro, what happened? I thought I was your guy. And I'm like, you're right, you are. I hired you to do a job. Let's, let's continue to communicate. If there are things that I see, I will, I will continue to, to talk to you. But that's where, you know, what happens is, is that we get the wrong sense of ur urgency. And that's why we need people around us to be able to, to speak clearly to us, to talk and to be able to communicate these things because, you know, it's like, like anything else, right? You, you know, I, my wife and I, we try to work in tandem on, on raising our kids. If there's no communication between the two, then they're getting two separate ideas. That never works, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I gotta tell you there's one last thing Tyler I gotta tell you about Banny so whenever he would come into town and we'd work with the catchers it, it, I can appreciate it more because I, I I have girls that I work with behind the plate one of the things I had to learn how to do is throw a softball underhand so <laughs> Banny would come in and we'd be working on receiving and he would stand probably 30 probably 30 feet away and he would throw the windmill coming underneath like a softball pitcher. And he'd throw this power sinker that would just go boom. And you could not – I mean, I, I always was trying to be as still as possible and hoping that he would just hit the glove. But some of the other guys – I remember guys like, like Ryan Dumit or Ronnie Polino, guys that had this big trigger with their hands, and they're going down, they're missing. He's smoking them in the, in the chest protector. <laughs> and the very first softball girl that I tried this with, I, my first throw, and I'm like, all right, I can figure this out. I'm an athlete. First one I threw, I held on too long. So I literally threw it straight up in the air. <laughs> so now I feel bad. And I'm like, I got to do the next one. I just got to let go a little earlier. I let go behind me. It bounced behind me, bounced over the top. And then I figured it out eventually. But, um, yeah, so I, I actually do the same thing used to do with us. I throw that to all the kids, whether they're boys or girls coming from underneath, letting that little kind of flick with the wrist. And it's a different, it's a different way for them to see it. But yeah, so all the, all the little tricks that you, that you didn't realize you're passing on, you, you know, I've been using those, stealing that one for years now. But um, that, that's, <laughs> that, that's awesome. That's a great story because it's, listen, there's, <clears throat> we like to think that we're really smart and that we, you know, we come up with all these things, right? It's remember, uh, it's borrowed knowledge, man. It's, it's, you know, we all, and, and, and it becomes what's necessary, the right drill or the right communication, the right, you know, whatever, right information, right? It's what's, it's whatever is necessary. It's what's necessary for the person you are, are teaching coaching, right? We like to think that, well, I'm just going to give them this information because I'm smarter than they are. And this is what they, what I think they need. The reality is we need to find out what path they've been on, where are they at and what's necessary for them. Mm -hmm. and, then, and once we figure that out, then, Hey, but we can't, I mean, we're golden, but we can't do that. If we just think we, we own all the information because that means that we're, we're cutting out so much information from others. That's, you know, they're 
I'll tell you this. So, Chris, this is one of the things that, that so as flexible as you were and how low you set, right? That in today's game, when you watch these guys that have to that, that get on a knee to start down low to come up to the ball to receive baseball, right? Well, we talked about it today, Tony Payne, right? Junior Ortiz, Gary Carr. There were guys that were already yourself, were already doing these things. And so my mind goes to sometimes that when I see a guy like yourself as flexible as you were, of you know, maybe somebody has boxed them in and put them like more traditional. You know, Russell Martin. Russell Martin, when we got him from from the Yankees, was this <clears throat> in spring training, this traditional squared up, boxed up catcher, right? And I'm not, I was I was facilitating work for him to get him ready. It's a veteran guy, right? And finally one day he goes, he's what do you got for me? You hadn't, you hadn't said a word to me. I'm like, bro, you got, you got skins on the wall. He said, no, no, it don't work like that. <clears throat> I said, okay, go out to shortstop. He goes, what? I said, go to shortstop. We start hitting you some ground balls. He thought I was crazy. Well, here's the deal. Milt May, when I started catching and I was with the Pittsburgh Pirates and I was I was pretty traditional setup and I was okay learning milk told me to go get a shortstop put a put a fielder's glove on he started hitting me ground balls and at the end of it he says you see how athletic you are when you're catching ground balls so yeah you see how your feet move yeah that's exactly how I want you to be behind the plate. It opened up a whole new world for me. So I always put that one in my back pocket. I'm like, this one's going to help somebody along the way, right? And if you watch kind of the, the transformation, Russell Martin, where he was kind of with the Yankees, the Dodgers, to where when he got with Pittsburgh, and you saw like when he would throw a second base, he was already out and gone before the ball ever got there. And that was the whole transition from the ability for him to go out and take ground balls. He loved being a shortstop, right? He loved that thought. I just told him, I said, you're a shortstop catching. That's all you are. And it opened up that whole, and it's the information that he needed. Not the information I want to give him. It was the information that he needed at that time. And that's what we're talking about when we – we coach and instruct and just it's what's necessary for the person. We can never, never, ever, ever lose sight of that because we can be so strict and stubborn that, you know, we never unlock the greatness that some other human being may have. Wow. Maybe that's why we, I mean, a lot of the guys that we've interviewed, you know, these are guys that were um, former shortstops growing up when they were, when they were in high school or a little bit of college before moving over. So, you, you do. You, there's more athletic movements, and when guys realize that, hey, I I am athletic. I, I am an athlete. Then it's it's more of a reactionary position than trying to be a robot, like we talked about earlier. But um, yeah. So that was that was great, Banning. We um, yeah. you know, we've taken a, a ton of your time. We appreciate you coming on. We could obviously you could tell we could do this stuff for for five, six, seven hours. So yeah, if if 
you ever feel like you want to just talk the game, by all means, reach out to us and love to have you back on. But uh, yeah, enjoy your, enjoy your uh, move out to Colorado. Um, hopefully, you know, we'll see you managing in the big leagues and, you know, in uh, the upcoming year or, or what have you, but, you know, look forward to always seeing people that had an influence on me. I knew I was kind of a pain in the ass toward the end of my career, especially with, uh, at the end of spring training when we'd have our talks and I'd be like, you're sending me where are you freaking kidding me? This is crap, you know, but that's, that's part of, part of the game, part of, uh, maturing, I guess, once you get out of it. But yeah, man, this is, this has been a lot of fun for us. Always, uh, you know, always love the input that you had. Appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's been a blast. Um, you never know the impact you make on others, but you always will know the impact that they made on you. So I, I appreciate it, Chris. And it's, it's been a blast. Um, anytime, uh, help you guys out. As you can tell, I love to talk the game. Uh, a lot of great people have, have taught, taught me a lot of, a lot of really cool parts. And, and like I said, I've been blessed to, to have one of the coolest jobs ever. And uh, so, but keep making an impact, guys. It, it's been fun. I appreciate it. And if, if you need it again, just holler at me, all right? We'll do. All right. Thanks for coming Thanks on, Danny. Yeah. All right, guys, thank you. Well, that's a wrap on any number three of game number three. Thank you again to all of you for tuning in. We really enjoy bringing catching to you each and every week from some of the top professionals in the game, as well as some of the top minds and best minds in all of catching. As always, we want to give a shout out to our loyal partners over at All Star Sports. Baseball is being played in some states, so make sure you're geared up with all of their gear, whether it's from training gloves to shin guards to helmets to masks. Go give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. And to all of you, please stay safe, stay tuned, and we'll catch you real soon.